So what do you do on a nine-hour flight? The options are many. Yes, you can sleep. <laughs> you can read. You can watch a movie. You can snack. Or you can people watch. But the first thing you do is hope that no one sits next to you. That's the situation I found myself in a week ago today. We were on the second leg of our journey from Central Asia back home, and we're on the longest leg of that journey, traveling from Germany to New Jersey, a nine-hour flight. And as I boarded that flight, some of my worst fears were realized. First, my seat was at the very back row of the plane. Second, I had the dreaded, cramped middle seat with a lady sitting next to me. But the seat to my right, in this three-seat row, was empty. And so for the next 15 minutes, but what seemed like two hours, I'm fervently hoping that no one sits next to me so I can spread out. With every person who boards, I'm giving the evil eye, <laughs> trying to make myself as unattractive, like, I smell, please don't come back here, right? Don't sit next to me. Don't you dare come back here. But by the end of the flight, I was wishing that someone had taken the seat beside me because of who boarded and sat all around me in the three or four rows in front of me. Roughly 20 or 25 Hasidic Jews who for almost the entire nine-hour flight had their lights on and were reading the Hebrew scriptures and other Jewish literature. And for about half that time, I wasn't as committed, for about half that time, I was reading too, preparing to restart this series in Matthew. I spent about half that time reading straight through the Gospel of Matthew. It was a striking picture and a sad picture. There they were, wholly dedicated to reading of the Messiah, still to come. The one who would come, they were waiting for to rescue his people and to establish his kingdom. But I was reading Matthew's testimony that he had come. That the Messiah that the Jews had waited for, had hoped for, had longed for, had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. He had come to save his people, Matthew 121 says, from all their sins through his life and death and resurrection. And to turn all who trusted in him to have eternal life in his eternal kingdom. They were looking for, waiting for what Matthew wrote about. The king, the Messiah, had come. His name is Jesus, and we must trust him. That's the message those Hasidic Jews around me needed to hear. And brothers and sisters, that's the message that a week later, us sitting in this room in Temple Hills need to hear. Amen. That Jesus Christ is king and he reigns as Savior and Lord, and we all must turn from him and bow our hearts in allegiance to him. And so this morning we return 
to our study in the book of Matthew. We've been walking through this book for, I think this is the third year now. We started in 2020, and we've taken a chunk each, each year, the beginning of each year. It's written by one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, in the late 50s or early 60s in the first century B.C. And Matthew is writing to who I was sitting around on the plane, to largely a Jewish audience, trying to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament talked about, pointing to a Messiah. He is the one who's come to rescue his people. The book of Matthew is structured, we talked about this before, largely around five sermons, five major discourses that Jesus gives in this book. The first we find in chapters 5 through 7, the famous Sermon on the Mount. The second sermon we see in chapter 10, where Jesus gives a sermon about witness and mission. The third is in chapter 13, where Jesus speaks prolonged about the parables of the kingdom. The fourth is in chapter 18, the sermon about the church. And then the fifth in chapters 23 through 25, where Jesus speaks at length about judgment. And this morning, as we pick back up in our study in Matthew, we land at this fourth main section of speeches, uh, main section of sayings by Jesus in chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, do turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 14. The scriptures read, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child of my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be greater or better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin. Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Here's what I think is the, the main point of Matthew 18, 1 through 14. I think it's pretty clear in the passage, but the main point of this text 
God doesn't wish that any should perish. So turn from your sin and become childlike in your faith that you might enter his kingdom. God doesn't wish, doesn't desire, doesn't want anyone to perish. So turn from your sin and become childlike in your faith that you might enter his kingdom. As we walk through this text, we'll hang our thoughts on three actions of turning from sin that Jesus calls us to. Number one, turn from pride. We see that in verses one through four. Number two, turn from temptations. We see that in verses five through nine. And number three, turn from turning away. We see that in verses 10 through 14. So turn from pride, number one. Turn from temptations, number two. Turn from turning away, number three. First, turn from pride. Now, Pride is nowhere mentioned in these first few verses. I mean, nowhere do you see the term pride. But the posture of a proud heart is put on full display. We see it in the question the disciples ask Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's an absurd question. They're talking to Jesus. The one they've seen do incredible things. They've just seen him in chapter 17 transfigured before their eyes. His dazzling glory blinding them. At least a few of them saw that. And then coming down the mountain, they all saw him heal a demon-possessed man. Oh boy. Which wasn't the first time. I mean, it wasn't a fluke. This man has healed multiple demon-possessed people. His stat line in Matthew is incredible. In just three professional ministry seasons, he's cast out demons. He's caused the blind to see, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, lepers to be cleansed, and even the dead to rise. And yet, after seeing all that, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? The king is the greatest in the kingdom. You don't look at the subjects. You look at the sovereign. That's who the ruler, the greatest is. How often is it that we blind ourselves from the Lord's glory in favor of our own? We turn our eyes from him to look upon ourselves. Who is the greatest? Now, the kingdom of heaven there is is not simply a designation of a future physical place in heaven. But as Matthew often uses it, it describes the realm over which Jesus reigns over his redeemed people now. It's his kingship over those who follow him. So one error is that the disciples have not focused enough on Jesus's glory as the king. And another error is that as his people, they've started competing against one another for position. 
Maybe they'll eagerly say, Jesus is number one. But which among us is number two? Who's his top dog? His top deputy? Again, he, he picked just three of them to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in chapter 16, he, he singled out Peter as having made the right confession about him. So maybe they're starting to, 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 to think, well, 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 who does Jesus really favor? They, they all started jockeying for position, for status, competing against one another. But it's not just limited, limited to them, though. I mean, we know from experience that we can turn anything into a competition, can't we? I mean, it might be a little distracting, but let one of you get up right now and shoot a piece of paper in the trash. As soon as it leaves your hand, your thoughts are consumed with it going in. Because now you know that you've got eyes watching you. You've got an audience. And when that thing hits the bottom of the can, you leave your hand in the air like Jordan just hit that game winner against Russell. And you strut back to your chair thinking, I'm the best doggone paperball shooter in the world. <laughs> and then what happens? Suddenly, another one of you just happens to find a piece of paper that needs to be bought up and thrown into the trash. And at a greater distance than the previous person. And a competition begins. Who's the greatest? Now, often it's, it's lighthearted. Who's the greatest shooter? Who's the greatest barbecue? Or who's the greatest chili chef? I don't know how y'all don't let Warner win this thing or I was gone. <laughs> but sometimes it turns out to be more sadistic, more twisted. Sometimes we don't simply make competitions out of small, menial things. We make competitions out of heavy, spiritual things. You know, it's, it's a delight to be a member of a church that's striving to grow in health. We want to be a biblically healthy church. And one of the things you find in such settings is, is a number of people aspiring to grow spiritually. But one of the dangers that lurches in those settings, that might creep up on us, is an unhealthy ambition to outdo or outperform one another for attention for accolades, for recognition. Who's the greatest? I wonder if floating around in your hearts this morning, floating around your hearts constantly is this hidden competition going on of, of who's greatest among us spiritually. Brothers, I wonder if when you hear other brothers preach or speak, even as I'm speaking right now, if there's some kind of evaluation going on. Not simply to see if the person speaking is in the text, but if the person speaking is better than you. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if in your Christian walk, the emphasis is not on you growing in holiness so much as if, it's, if you are better in this area of discipleship than another brother or sister. Not struggling as much as him or her. This passage begins with these disciples wrestling about who's at the top, which is a dangerous place to be. Because if you're the greatest, then there's nothing else above you. 
nowhere else to go. I mean, greatest implies you don't need growth. And you don't need God. You, you know, the, the scariest part of this kind of competition for greatness is that somebody might actually win. I mean, your skills, your abilities, your apparent godliness might so stand out to others that they affirm you are the greatest. Saints, that's a kind of encouragement. But it's a worldly encouragement rather than a godly encouragement. The kind that puffs up instead of builds up. The kind that focuses on one's own self and one's own skills as the source of confidence and not God. And it's deadly because it promotes a kind of self-sufficiency that you and I weren't made for. Now, how do you think Jesus will respond here? I mean, here the disciples are having a conversation about who's the greatest in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And just think about how God has responded to human boasting before. The people building the Tower of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves by constructing a tower to heaven. God responded in judgment tearing down the tower and confusing their languages. King Herod boasted in his own glory that he was a god instead of giving glory to God. And the Lord sent an angel to strike him down and worms to eat his body. And here were the disciples who've had greater access to God than the people at the Tower of Babel. Greater access than Herod. They'd walked with Jesus for three years and seen all his glorious works, and yet here they are boasting in themselves. How do you think Jesus is going to respond? Well, you think in furious judgment as he has before. But instead, it's with a gentle rebuke. First, in the form of a visual. In response to their question, of which one of them was the greatest, the disciples are expecting Jesus to blurt out a name. Peter, John, or Matthew. Jesus instead initially doesn't say anything, but puts forward a no-name little child. Yeah. It makes the point. They're worrying about acclaim and think Jesus is impressed by accomplishments but he reaches out to someone who's anonymous, doesn't even have a name. And he says in verse three, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus isn't calling these adult males to literally become children. Remember, that's how Nicodemus initially thought of Jesus' contention that he must be born again in a strictly physical sense. Rather, Jesus is calling them to become like children. And it's not that children are perfectly innocent or that children are perfectly humble and don't struggle with pride. If you have kids or have been around kids, you know that narrative to be quickly dissolved. Rather, children are 
dependent. They generally can't live on their own, and they know it. The little children know they need their parents and can't survive without them. That's the kind of mindset that Jesus is calling his disciples to have. One that doesn't first think of themselves, but only thinks of themselves in relation to the one they need and must depend on and can't survive without him. Apart from him, they can do nothing. In Jesus's upside down kingdom, the greatest is the lowest on the social pole like a little child, helpless. Those who recognize their need of Christ are the ones who will be properly identified as his people, are those who will be citizens in his kingdom both now and forever. The disciples' attitude betrays that they aren't yet fit, prepared for that kingdom. Friends, none of us naturally are. All of us brim with a a kind of self-confidence that may not express itself in outward boast of greatness, but maybe with inward thoughts of grumbling, upset when people don't notice us, don't recognize our contributions. Perhaps we, we daydream about being someone different, somewhere different, where we would get more shine. All of us suppose our own greatness, project our immense pride when we seek to live life our own way, apart from any unnecessary input from God or his people. So we take jobs and leave churches and enter relationships because we feel like it. And can nobody tell us otherwise? We groan. Friends, that is the epitome of pride exalting self. And Jesus calls us all to do what he calls the disciples to do in verse 3. To turn, to repent, to be converted and become like what we naturally are not. We need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to make us new creations. People who do not live apart from God's rule, but under it. And God gives us that through his son. The ultimate example of humility, who left his throne in heaven, became a man, entered into our world, and humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross, dying for our sins, but three days later, rising up from the grave for our justification, calling us all now to come to him. And when we do, he He changes us. He changes us. Friends, if you've never experienced that change, you can today by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And this is not some optional take it or leave it thing. Notice the dangers present of rejecting this command. If you do not turn and become like children, if you do not turn from pride and humble yourself in childlike fashion and dependence on God, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will be shut out 
forever from God's presence. Come today. Turn from your pride. It's what's needed at the beginning of the Christian life to become a Christian. And it's what's needed throughout the Christian life. So, so what does turning from pride look like for us as the church? How might we do that? Well, well one, by continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? He is greatness exemplified. And so we want our ministry, the ministry of Temple Hills Baptist Church, to be about him. We want the messages preached to exalt him and not us. And as we look at his ministry and his model of humility, it should shape us. As he holds out the anonymous as examples of greatness, we recognize that there are no nobodies in Christ's kingdom. And so rather than viewing each other as competitors, we can see each other as co-laborers for Christ. One person may preach, but another may set up sound. One may lead music, the other serve in the nursery. One may put on events, the other's ministry more behind the scenes that you never really see. But each one serving a role and every member indispensable, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Another way we can turn from pride and, and aim to kill one person exalting himself above others is to follow the biblical pattern for church leadership. That is, the Bible does not put the leadership of the church into the hands of one man, but a plurality of elders or pastors whom Jesus charges to care for and lead the church. It helps us to guard against any ideas that one man alone is the greatest preacher and the greatest evangelist and the sharpest thinker and the, most, uh, the best encourager and the most supreme administrator and can do everything himself. Amen. And it helps us to recognize God's gifts to other people. So right now I'm the only pastor here, but... In the coming months and weeks and years, we want to be recognizing mature, godly brothers who might help shepherd this flock with me. And in doing so, we don't want it to be a measuring of each other. Is this guy better at this than this guy? But do they meet the biblical qualifications? And are they already shepherding the flock and being a servant to the body without the title? Greatness is not tied up in recognition of self, but recognition of Christ and our service to and under him. We must turn from pride. Secondly, we must turn from temptation. Turn, point number two, from temptation. First, we must turn from tempting others. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now again, as Jesus talks about the, the little ones and children here, he's not physically talking about 
physical children, literally talking about physical children, but spiritual children. Those who are lowly and dependent on God like children are to their parents. You see that throughout this passage. It's similar to what he said back in chapter 10, verse 42, as he was sending his disciples out on mission. And he said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The little ones are a description of genuine disciples. And to receive them is to receive Christ himself, Jesus says in verse 5. And just, just notice how Jesus identifies with his people. How you treat them is how you treat me. It's why he confronted Saul on the Damascus Road. After Saul had been locking up and killing Christians, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus cares how Christians are treated. Welcoming believers, loving Christians is a sign of what you think of Christ. And it's commended here. But on the flip side, Jesus says in verse 6, whoever causes Christians to sin will face condemnation. Now, now this is interesting here. You would think that warnings about tempting Christians to sin would be directed towards the world, towards unbelievers. But Jesus is talking to his disciples. Surely believers never tempt other believers to sin, do they? Surely we don't need this warning. Well, apparently so. I mean, just in the disciples' previous question about greatness, it showed that they were tempting each other to lust for supremacy over each other rather than to lovingly serve each other. I think it shows how quickly and perhaps even unwittingly at times, we can take sides with the devil against Jesus and his people. Now, these temptations probably aren't the overt ways we used to tempt people to sin when we were unbelievers. It's probably not that we offer our bodies to be used or substances to be abused, but more subtle. So think about it. What are some of the subtle ways we might tempt fellow believers to sin? Is your giving a listening ear and a seemingly approving nod and an occasional, I know, right, tempting others to keep gossiping, to keep slandering others in your presence? Do you portray a nonchalant attitude towards holiness, downplaying the, the seriousness, seriousness of sin when another brother or sister confesses it? And does that tempt younger Christians to adopt the same attitude and the same actions, figuring from your example that you can be a Christian and still live in unrepentant sin? Is your strong stance on your Christian freedom tempting weaker Christians to sin against their conscience as you suggest activities or songs or movies that you personally feel freedom to enjoy in Christ without issue? 
what may cause them heavy reservations. Parents, do you tempt your children with their budding faith to sin by provoking them to anger? Children, don't laugh, Javen. <laughs> do you tempt your believing parents to sin? You know them well enough. You don't live with them long enough to know their weak spots. That if you keep on tapping on that spot, they're going to explode at some point. Now, that doesn't excuse their outbursts, but neither does it excuse your tempting them. The world is full of temptations. Temptations must come, Jesus says in verse 7. That's just a matter of fact in a fallen world. A world in which God has ordained to use temptations to sin for his sovereign purposes, to judge unbelievers and to sanctify believers. Now, he's never directly behind temptations. James chapter 1, verse 13 says he never tempts anyone, but he uses and permits temptation and sin for his grand plans. But that in no way lets people off the hook. We are still responsible. Yes, temptations must come, Jesus says, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Let it not be true of any of us that we are the means of tempting other believers, that we are the perpetrators causing brothers and sisters to sin. If we are, then what Jesus wants us to know is that we will be judged. And so we must turn from tempting others to sin. And we must turn from any temptations that tempt us to sin. That's Jesus' point in verses 8 and 9. It's familiar language. We've seen this terminology of cutting off limbs and plucking out eyes back on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. And again, it's not literal, but metaphorical. Go to any lengths necessary to remove the things in your life that are leading you to sin. Friends, sin is serious. If you don't see anything else in these passages, I hope you see that. God hates sin. And because God is a holy and a just God, he will send us to hell for our sins. And hell... Is horrible. A place at the end of verse 8, where we're told, of eternal fire. But Jesus does not want us to go there. And so all throughout this passage, he's calling us to turn from our sin, turn from everything tempting us to sin, do whatever it takes not to go to that place. Friends, Jesus is not blowing smoke when he talks about the heinousness of sin. He's not exaggerating when he talks about the horrors of hell. He, as the one through whom all things were created, made hell. He knows how much agony is there. He knows the wickedness and the horror of just one sin. So while none of us will ever be sinless in this life, we need to try to cut out every cause of sin in our lives so that we might sin less. 
So for instance, if you struggle with anger, or if you struggle with having a sharp tongue, and if what sparks those things is reading the social media posts of someone you strongly disagree with on politics or social issues, then guess what? You can unfollow him or her. There might still be heart issues you need to address, but at least cut off the immediate avenues where your anger is expressed. If you struggle with pornography, whether you're a man or a woman, old or young, and if what contributes to the desire to look at porn is the ease with which you can do so on your smartphone, then guess what? You don't need a smartphone. I mean, everybody wearing what's retro anyway. You can go really retro and get you a flip phone. Or you can get a friend to help lock down your smartphone and be an accountability partner. There might still be heart issues you need to address, but at least cut off the access points where your lust for porn is fulfilled. We must take drastic, act, drastic action to root out sin in our lives. It's, it's amazing how often we ourselves can justify our sin. As if we just have to have things in our lives that those things are the one, the very things that are leading us to sin. We have to have Jesus in our lives. Amen. And Jesus says our sin is what's keeping us from him. So instead of not having him and having all, all those other things, remove those other things that you might have him. Right. Take out any action, take any action to root out sin in our lives. And so the good news is, is that this is not just a solo act. Friends, use the gift of the body, the gift of the church. Put the sword into the hands of other believers to help you cut out sin. One way we can do that is by being transparent. Sharing areas where you struggle. Sharing situations and circumstances where you're tempted to grumble. Tempted to be ungrateful. Tempted to be harsh, tempted to be boastful. And one of the, the things I love about our church is our willingness to do that, to share stuff with one another. Friends, keep doing that. You ain't got to share your business with everybody, but at least share it with somebody. And give them license, not just to be a passive listening ear, but an active, lethal partner in helping you to put sin and every temptation to sin to death. Nothing less than your eternal destiny hangs on it. We must turn from temptations. Lastly, we see we must turn from turning away. Point number three, we must turn from turning away. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus again shows his care for his people and calls his disciples to emulate his care. He says in first, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these believers. Don't look down on them. Don't scorn them or show contempt towards other Christians, even the, the littlest one. Even the seemingly weakest one, the one that's always got issues, the one that constantly needs help. Now, why does Jesus need to give this command? Well, because we tend to favor those who seem put together, who are polished, 
who are impressive. Those are the ones that we turn towards and we turn away from, stay back from the needy, the less kept, the, the ones with the strange personalities, the, the weirdos, the one that always got issues, who's always complaining. Those are the ones we keep back from. It's the tendency that Jesus' brother, James, had to correct in James chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, when he told the church to show no partiality. Don't give the best seating and the most attention to a man wearing fine clothes and gold rings while you disregard the poor man who comes in shabby clothing. And no, James says you shouldn't make any distinctions among believers. The same as Jesus says here. If they belong to him, then you ought to welcome them and love them and not look down on them. And, and he shows their value. He says at the end of verse 10 that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Amen. Now, I, I don't think this passage is teaching that every believer has an individual guardian angel. Right? We don't see that anywhere else exactly spelled out in scripture. But we do see that God has commanded angels and dispensed angels to guard and to protect his people. Psalm 91, 11 says he commands his angels to keep guard around your way. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we learn that God has sent out his ministering spirits, his angels to serve believers. Those angels have glorious access, Jesus says here, to the glorious presence of God Almighty. They see the face of the Father in heaven and are sent from that place, from that glorious place, for another glorious purpose, to go care for Christians. I think Jesus is making the point. How dare you look down on believers when those who look at God, angels, are sent to look out for them. And it is their privileged duty in service to him to do so. It shows God's care. And Jesus, in turn, wants us to have the same care for these little ones, for brothers and sisters in the faith. And Jesus follows that with a parable to kind of press home God's care for every believer. Now, just on the side, if you're observant, you'll notice here that there's no verse 11. It goes from verse 10 straight to verse 12. That's because in the earliest manuscripts of the over 5,000 copies of the New Testament we have, far more copies than any other ancient document, right? In all those manuscripts, right, verse 11 is not found in the earliest copies. All right, that, that, that should just increase our confidence in the Bible our confidence that the Bibles we have, that the words we have in our Bibles should actually be there. We've got enough copies of Scripture to analyze and see what was original. In any case, Jesus, he follows his command on not despising believers, not turning away from them, but rather turning towards them with a parable that these disciples living in an agrarian society would understand. That of a shepherd with sheep, he says in verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it 
more than over the 99 that went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these little ones, that not one of these little ones should perish. The shepherd here so values every one of his sheep that even if just one out of 100 strays away, he leaves and goes to find it. He, he cares for the 99. But while they are protected and okay, he knows the dangers that the lost sheep is in out of his presence. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't turn and, and talk about the wandering sheep to the 99, reprimanding it for its stupidity, using it as an object lesson to them. He doesn't just write it off as part of normal business. You, you lose some and you win some. No, he cares enough to go find that sheep. And when he finds it, he doesn't give it a stern talking to. No, he rejoices over it. Like the father rejoiced over the return of the prodigal son. Like God the father rejoices over his prodigal sons and daughters. Over us. I don't know what picture you have of God in your mind. You know, it seems like in some settings, the, the clearer, the better, the sharper the theology, the sharper our hearts seem to get. In some settings, there's a kind of cold adherence to sound doctrine that leaves us without experiencing the warm affections of the God whom we say we know. But the Bible presents this God as one whose heart rejoices over us. Nothing cools his affections for us. He desires and delights in us. Zephaniah says he sings over us. The Lord rejoices when he finds us. You're not a problem to God. You're not someone God is aggravated with. God doesn't have buyer's remorse. When God sought you out and saved you, what did God do? He sang. He rejoiced and all heaven sang with him. Oh, I hope that comforts you today. And not one of your sins will make him stop singing. Jesus died for every single one of them. They're all secure. That doesn't mean you keep sinning. That means you say, oh my gosh, what grace the Lord has shown me. Let me live in gratitude to him. He loves us. He rejoices over us. Jesus says this is an illustration of the Father's, Father's care for us. It's not his will, he says in verse 14. Not his desire that one little one, that one of his people would perish. Friends, perishing, don't get it twisted. Perishing is all there is when we part from God. It might seem like you're going to go find life in that dude or that girl. It might seem like those drugs will give you a different life, a different avenue. It might seem like that house might give you life. That's a little phrase people be saying, right? This is giving me life now, all right? It ain't giving you no life. You ain't finding no life apart from Jesus. Jesus is our life. In him, there is life. In him, there is joy. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus himself said. We're not saying things about Jesus that he don't say about himself. He is all that we need. No life apart from the author of life. We deserve to die for our rebellion against him. We deserve to perish for departing from him. But the Father has sent his shepherd, the good shepherd, 
Jesus Christ to lay down his life for the sheep, to bring us back into the fold. He sent his son in the world to rescue lost sheep like us at the price of his very life, to turn us back from turning away from him. Friend, are you turning away today? Straying from God? Do you sense that? Have you considered that you're being here physically today? Maybe you weren't intending to come today. Have you considered that your being here physically today is the Lord's kindness in keeping you from straying? You need to be here. The gathering of the saints is a guard against apostasy. That's what the author of Hebrews says in writing to a group of Christians tempted to turn away from the faith. He says in Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. That is not going to help you. God has given you a church to keep you from falling away. Maybe you're here every week, faithfully. But your physical presence veils what's going on in your heart or what's going on in your home. Have you lost interest in God? Have you found interest in something else that's captured your attention and dulled your affections for the Lord? Have you lost your first love? Well, saints, let verses like these remind you that the Lord has not lost his love for you. He's seeking after you and calling you today to turn back from turning away. Return to him that you might have life, real life, real joy, eternal life in him. The Father loves us and seeks after us in such a way. So we ought to love and seek after each other. And we'll talk about more of that next week, but 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 saints, the the Lord employs us to pursue one another. So call people you haven't seen in a while. Ask folks after service spiritual heart questions. Continue getting together and checking in with folks throughout the week. Friends, Jesus cares. And we should care. Jesus, notice in this passage, Jesus cares about numbers. But it's not how the world often cares. He doesn't care about how big the church is or how big their budget is. Jesus cares about numbers because numbers represent people, people whom God made and whom God loves and whom Jesus gave himself to save. And all he saves, he means to keep. If you're straying, this morning, turn back from straying away. And if you're secure then your job is to help those who are straying from turning away. God doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all might turn from sin and become childlike, dependent in their faith, that all might enter his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your deep, searching love for us. We thank you that you have come for us when we wanted none of you. Lord, we praise you that even this morning, Lord, as some of us might be tempted to turn away, Lord, that you are seeking us out through your word and by your spirit. 
Lord, have your way, we pray. Help us, we pray. Draw us to yourself and don't turn us away. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.